Now, for those who are visiting with us, we've been studying this. This is our third study in our church constitution. So we've considered the foreword, the introduction, those matters, and even the purpose. We spent some time on the purpose of our church, which I trust was, was uh, very helpful to you. Why are we here? And that statement of our church's purpose would help you with that matter. Now we come to Articles 3, 4, and we're going to get into Article 5, which is about membership. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to get some distance along in that because it's a lot of good material here. With regard to our Articles of Faith, Article 3 of our church constitution, it states, We adopt as the fullest expression of our faith the London Confession of Faith of 1689. The ultimate authority in all matters of faith and practice is the Bible alone. And if you want to underscore that in your copy, that's fine with me. Which truth is clearly set forth in the opening article of the confession itself. This historic document, albeit imperfect, is an excellent summary of the things most surely believed among us. And we find it to be an assistance in controversy, a, a confirmation in faith, and a means of edification in righteousness. And so that's why we've had a series of expositions of the 1689, which took, oh, some years, I think, when I arrived here, coming back from the Philippines five years ago. Oh, what chapter were we in? It's hard to remember to look back that far. And going one a month, more or less, Sometimes it took uh, more than uh, one shot to cover a certain chapter, but we've finished the Confession of Faith. We studied that. Why? Because of these statements here. It's a summary of those things which I trust we can say honestly are most surely believed among us. We find it helpful in controversy, uh, confirmation faith, means of edification. So we've studied it. Now, we, I, I want to give this balancing statement, which our Constitution does. Uh, we don't consider this confession to be inspired. We don't fall down before it as if to quote the confession of faith is the last word. All right, I quoted the confession. That's it. All discussion ceases. No, because the Bible is our sole ultimate authority. But as our church constitution says, we consider this confession to be an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches on the various subjects that are taken up in the confession. Now, for myself, just a little bit of history. When I came to this church in 1978, I had only read the, confe the, the confession once in the form of the Philadelphia confession, which is, has a couple of articles added on laying on of hands and I don't know I don't remember the other one but uh, it's basically the 1689 and I thought yeah I agree with that but uh, I didn't really understand all that was in it and I did not become a member of this church because of the 1689 Baptist confession I became a member of this church because I saw this church preaches the Bible follows the Bible and what the Bible says is what matters to us. And I, I hope that's 
true of each one, but we do find, as the church constitution says, and as the confession says in its introduction, this is a good summary. And I can honestly say before you, I adopt this as the things most surely believed. And so that's why we have this confession. It's, uh, if we saw from the Bible that our confession of faith was an error, I trust that Trinity Baptist Church would vote to revise it in that article, if it ever came to that. But we don't see that to be necessary. It's a good summary of what the Bible teaches. Any questions about that? I hope that's clear. That's, that's how we look at our confession of faith. A good summary, a help in so many ways. The things most surely believed among us. All right, well, let's go on. That was fast. Article 3, we flew through that one. Article 4, and I don't uh, plan to spend a lot of time on this one either. Article 4 says, with regard to church affiliation, we acknowledge no ecclesiastical authority other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And then it mentions Ephesians 5.23, uh, Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And it goes on to say, and who directs the affairs of the church through elders chosen and ordained according to the precepts of Holy Scripture. And then there are other texts there. And uh, these are the passages, Acts 14, 21 to 23, 1 Timothy 3, uh, Titus 1. These are the passages which demonstrate the selection of elders who are the leaders and rulers of the church. And then it goes on. The elders themselves at all times and in all their activities stand under the authority of not a synod, not a group of churches, not a denomination, but of holy scripture. And I want to say, again, as an elder of this church, we take this seriously. We want to lead this church in paths of righteousness, which are delineated by what God says. And we want to follow the scriptures in all of our <clears throat> decisions with regard to the life of the church. And even we have as an ex example or illustration, Acts 16.4 is uh, mentioned here. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. Now, we're not saying that the elders in Jerusalem then dictated to the other churches, but it was the apostles. That first church in Jerusalem was the home of the inspired apostles. And what they said then was regulative for all the churches that Paul and his companions are passing through coming out of this Jerusalem conference. What the apostles decreed, the churches were to observe. And we still do that. What the apostles decree that we have in our New Testaments, that's what we observe. And so just as they gave those decrees to the churches then. So we take those decrees and we obey them as well. And so, uh, as Paul said to the Corinthians, um, thus I direct in all the churches, 1 Corinthians 7, 17. We follow what was directed 
for all the churches. We don't do what we choose. It's not that the elders, you know, sit there and do, uh, well, uh, rock, stone, uh, rock, paper, scissors, and see what we're going to decide. We look into the Bible to see where we're going to go. All right, section two. So that's with regard to the ultimate authority in our church. It's Christ ruling his church through the scriptures. No other authority. But section two, we acknowledge that we're not the only church in the world. The church should cooperate with other like-minded churches in matters of mutual interest and concern. And then it quotes or refers to 2 Corinthians 8. That's the passage that deals with the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, a collection that was taken up by uh, various churches. It wasn't just one church doing this thing, but churches cooperated in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so we too, we're not alone. We cooperate with other churches. We acknowledge our brethren and other churches, and we work together on certain things. And so we have other churches, for example, that support our missionaries. And we support other missionaries because we believe that uh, this is something we can do together. And uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, it says, uh, it refers to that verse or that passage in regard to this statement, we may seek the assistance and should seek the counsel of other churches. So assistance, like the Jerusalem church, asked for assistance when they had that need of famine, and other churches contributed, 1 Corinthians 16. And then this statement, should seek the counsel. And then it, it mentions a couple of passages, Proverbs 11, multitude of counselors, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, um, you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. And that's, in a way, counsel by example. And you follow their example, what they were doing. They had the apostles there uh, in Jerusalem, the churches in Judea. You followed their example. You took counsel from how they were handling their situations. Counsel by example. And then it goes on to say, counsel of other churches in matters of special importance and concern to us, but the decision of no other church, group of churches, or council shall ever be binding on this church. And then it refers to Acts 14. And that's where when Paul was traveling through uh, on his return to various churches, as after his first missionary journey, it says they appointed for them elders in every church. And the word for appointed is the classical Greek term of raising of hands, which was used for election, voting. And so they appointed elders according to the selection, not of a council, not of a bishopric, not of a synod, but that local church. And so this is the support for this statement that we have no other church dictating to us, whether it's regard to the selection of elders or any other matter. Um, even the giving to, to help churches, Paul in Philippians 4.15, the next verse that's related, to, uh, related here, says, uh, no other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, the church in Philippi. In other words, no one dictated to the churches, or you've got to support Paul. Here's your quota. Here's how much you have to give. 
No, the church in Philippi, on, of their own initiative, gave to support Paul. They did not do so by order of any outside authority. And then it refers to the London Confession of Faith, which occasionally our church constitution will do. And that's 2615. And let me just quote the relevant passage there in 2615. It talks about um, churches sending uh, messengers, excuse me, to a kind of a conference or a assembly to talk about things. And it says, how be it, these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so-called. In other words, when they gather, it's not a synod that can then make decisions that will affect all the churches. It's not like in Jerusalem where you had the apostles in Acts 15 who were making decisions for the churches. No synod dictates to other churches. This is what our confession says. Nor are they entrusted with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. This is just underscoring that we have no higher authority than Christ, who is the head of the church. No one dictates to our local assembly outside of Christ, who is our head. And then section three, let me just pause there. Any question about that? That's, that's how we operate. Yes, Jake. Yeah. Generally speaking, a general answer there is that they would also subscribe uh, to the 1689 Confession of Faith. However, uh, you know, in other matters like maybe sending aid to uh, victims of a war or earthquake, like sending assistance to those in the Ukraine, it's hard to actually determine how far they're in agreement with us. But we see that they're evangelical. They believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, following the scriptures alone. And so with these basic evangelical uh, beliefs in place, we do give assistance there. But uh, our closer cooperation... Uh, Pastor Martin explained it to us this way in the academy that uh, there, there are circles of cooperation. And, you know, if it's broad evangelical, we may extend some cooperation there. But the closer you get to a more unified, uh, close understanding of what the scriptures teach, then there will be that, that center bullseye section will have even closer cooperation. That help? Okay. So we don't just send money willy nilly. Uh, to any Tom, Dick, and Harry, but we do seek to ascertain that these people are the real deal. My fellow elders, I see Pastor Chansky nodding. Any other comments there? Okay. All right, then section three. In addition to respecting the principles articulated in our confession of faith, and then it again refers to 2615. Now let me read that section of the confession that it's referring to. In cases of difficulties or differences 
either in point of doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned, or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order, it is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter indifference to be reported to all the churches concerned. And so our confession then goes on to say, our, our church constitution rather goes on to say, the church shall seek the assistance of an advisory council in cases of critical concern which threaten the integrity, that is really in a sense the existence, whole being held together, the unity or biblical order of this congregation, uh, we may have this advisory council. And then it refers to Acts 15.2 where there was this discussion whether believing or converted Gentiles should be baptized and required to follow the Mosaic law. And so Paul and Barnabas said no. Other brethren apparently said yes. And so they determined to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Now, this was an issue that would threaten the churches, not just one church. And so they did have this gathering in Jerusalem. But again, they had apostles there, not just elders. And so this provision of our church constitution is if there's something that threatens this church drastically. It goes on to say, and let me read the rest of these provisions before I make uh, a final comment on this section. The advisory council shall consist of five elders chosen by our elders from at least three sister churches with whom we have close fellowship. The choice of these five men shall be reviewed each year prior to the annual business meeting. The consent of those to be proposed shall be obtained, and the names of the five men shall be announced at the annual meeting and approved by the suffrage of the church. In other words, this is not just something the elders do behind closed doors. Uh, this is something that the whole church approves, that we have five trusted men who can give us counsel in time of need. Going on, should there be an untimely and unresolved disruption of fellowship with any of the churches from which the men have been selected, or should any of these men be removed from office or become unable to serve on the advisory council, the elders shall have the liberty of proposing replacements. Those shall be approved by the vote of the church at a properly called congregational meeting. The advisory council shall be convened or consulted at the discretion of a majority of the elders, or should the church be without elders at the discretion of a majority of the deacons? Now, let me just say, and I don't plan to spend a lot of time on this section of our church constitution. Uh, these are drastic measures that would be needed in drastic times. Now, I've been here back from the Philippines five years uh, we haven't had drastic times. We haven't had to call our council. Has that ever taken place? Pastor Jansky, Pastor Smith? Not since I've been here. We, well, we did get advice with reference to the retirement of Pastor Martin and the transition mm. calling Pastor Chansky, so we did do it at that time. Okay. So, uh, in a way, that's a drastic situation because the man who was the lead elder 
in a way, church planter of Trinity Baptist Church for how many years was retiring? What do we do next? And so there was counsel sought about who would be a suitable, not exact replacement, but uh, who would follow in those steps. And so uh, I was not here at the time, but that's the last time was 2007, nine, 10. <laughs> All right, for those online, maybe you didn't hear that. Pastor Chansky said uh, it was when his name was uh, mentioned that it became drastic. <laughs> well, drastic measures for drastic times, and thankfully we haven't needed them because of a, a disruption that threatened the integrity of this church or the unity of this church. And uh, we can give thanks for that. Thank our God that this church has been sustained. There are other churches perhaps you're familiar with or know I have some knowledge of who have had drastic disruptions. And I can thank God also that Moonwalk in the Philippines never had any such drastic situation. But uh, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. And so we have these statements in place in our church constitution uh, just in case. Because we're in a sin-cursed world. Bad things happen to churches. The devil delights as a roaring lion to devour the weak. And so let's continue to pray for the unity and harmony of our church. Again, I don't uh, see a need to dwell on that because, again, thankfully, we're not in drastic times. Any question, though, I'll refer to my fellow elders Pastor Chansky, I'll refer it to you. I don't have a question. I, I, everything you say, I agree with 100%. Uh, I think it would be helpful for people to recognize that what we're trying to do there in the Constitution or what the elders in the past have tried to do is to acknowledge the biblical principles that, like you said, we're not an island. And though God has given us all we need in each local church to conduct the business of that church, we recognize that we're part of the larger body of Christ and that we're humble enough to acknowledge that we could get into situations in which it would be wisest and best to seek for help and guidance from a multitude of counselors, even from outside of us. Hmm. And then going along with that, this is one of the things, and there are many in the Constitution, in which we're just trying to say, here's how we agree to conduct our lives according to biblical principles, even though we don't set these things up as biblical laws or commandments, like Pastor Hoffmeyer said earlier. And so, um, so there's, a, there's an important statement in the Confession of Faith and I'm reading it from the hymnal, if you want to look at it, on, on um, page 671, uh, that, that really guides us in understanding the Constitution compared to the Confession at many points. In the Confession of Faith, though we agree it's not inspired, we don't want to put anything in the Confession that the Bible doesn't state. 
there might be a couple of statements we, we, we have traditionally said, does the Bible really state that? Like, the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist, right? So we do question things like that. But in our Constitution, we'll, we feel the liberty to say, this is just a legitimate biblical way to do things, but we have to do something. And so here is the statement in the Confession. It's in chapter 1, paragraph 6 which says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. All right, we look at the Bible that way. It's our aim to have a confession that reflects that kind of teaching. But then we come to the second part of that paragraph. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the world, word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So we don't put in our confession things like we should worship the Lord in corporate gatherings three times every Lord's Day. But for the, for the conduct of our life as a church, we, we don't hesitate to put those things in the Word, because, the, the Constitution, because we have to pick something. Mm. And we're acknowledging, we're following the principles of the Word, but also the light of general revelation. That was a longer explanation than I thought I was going to give, but it might be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and keep that in mind, file that away, because we will need that as we come to other matters in our church constitution, where there is not a direct command or something that we can say, well, this is what the Bible says we ought to do in this, in this uh, certain situation. All right, so uh, thankfully, we can agree that, well, in case in this sin-cursed world we ever get in such a, a circumstance, we have procedures in place that will help us get through the bumpy road and come out the other side. All right, well, let's move on then to church membership. And I'd hope to get a little ways into this. But here we have in this next article, 5, section 1, and we'll not get past section 1 this morning if we get even through it, is requirements for church membership. And I was blessed by reading through this material. This is... You guys, this is what we want to see. This is what we look for in someone who is a member of Trinity Baptist Church. And for prospective members, we have two testimonies before you just now. Uh, this is what we're looking for. This is what we want to see in people who are going to join this church. What is it? Well, let me just say right up front. This is what the Bible describes a Christian to be. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay? All right, so let's look at what our church 
Constitution says about requirements for church membership. All right, so get your fingers out. And I want you to list how many things there are. So you can, there, it's less than 10, so you have enough fingers. Any man or woman, then there's some verses, shall be eligible for membership in this church who professes repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some more verses. Who manifests a life transformed by the power of Christ. Some more verses. And who is living that life consistent with the provisions of this Constitution set forth in Article 5, Section 4, Paragraph B, and sub subdivisions 1 through 5 thereof. No verses. But you'll get them when you come to those sections. Who has been baptized upon profession of faith. Some verses. Who expresses agreement with the confession and constitution of this church. Some verses. Who intends to give wholehearted support to its ministry. Some more re references. And who is willing to submit to its government. Some more references. And discipline. How many did you come up with? How many fingers you got? Okay. Eight. Hmm? Seven. Well, guess how many I got? I got nine. Okay. So uh, let's look at my nine and your seven are going to be in there or your, or your eight. They're going to be included in my nine. So uh, don't worry about it. Here are the basic requirements, what we're looking for in a member. First of all, any man or woman. Now, I think that's important in our day. Because there's only two categories, <laughs> All right? And we see this in the Bible. And, and let me just read, just to save time, these verses. Acts 5, 14, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. That's New American Standard. Men and women. Acts 8, 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So the church that Paul, or Saul was uh, persecuting was made up of men and women. Acts 8.12, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And so we acknowledge two categories, only two. And we welcome women as well as men. Now, I'm not sure why exactly the Holy Spirit underscored that at that time, but it was a very uh, man-centered world back in the day. And this shows that women are equally members of the church. Male and female, saved by grace, members of Trinity Baptist Church. I don't think we have to hammer that, but uh, it states it in our church constitution and has biblical warrant for doing so. All right, second thing, my number two, who profess repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith, these are the gospel basics. These are the gospel commands. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what Jesus began to preach, Mark chapter 1. This was the beginning of his ministry. Repent and believe the gospel. And uh, we find this in these references. And I think it's, it's helpful that we go through these references. I said it was helpful to me when I prepared these studies. 
and I think it will be helpful for you because how many of you, when you were asked to be members or you were applying for membership and you were asked to read the church constitution as well as the confession, did you really look up all the references? Maybe, maybe not. I think it's worth doing. And so that's what we're going to do as we go through this study. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. And, well, let me just summarize some of it. 27, or 37 to 42 is what's referred to there. Uh, but when they heard Peter at the day of Pentecost, it says, They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is clearly commanded there. But then it says, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What is assumed or uh, implied in that statement? To be baptized in Jesus' name implies your confidence is in Jesus. And it makes this explicit even further off. Further on in the passage, uh, <clears throat> verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. They received his word. In other words, when the gospel came to them, the word of God, they didn't say, oh, I don't know, that, that, okay, that one, I can check that one, but this one, uh, I'm not so sure about that. They believed his word, and what was his word, if you look at, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the bottom line is, this Jesus whom you crucified, God made both Lord and Christ. And they received that. These are Jews who had crucified him. And now they see he's Lord and Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. They came to faith and they were then baptized. And so repentance and faith is what they saw and they baptized 3,000 souls. And of course, the souls were in bodies that were baptized. They baptized 3,000. You know, we watched a baptism last Lord's Day. Three persons. How long did that take? That was a few minutes. Imagine 3,000. They were busy. I guess maybe all... The apostles were in on the action there and went down in the river, uh, wherever they did it there in uh, Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. But um, that was, that was, wouldn't that be wonderful? God is still on his throne and his arm is not short and he still saves. And we can pray that God would pour out his spirit again. Um, Acts 5, 14 and we read that above, all the more believers in the Lord were added to their number. Believers. Acts 8.12, we read that above. They believed Philip preaching the good news. They believed. That's faith. Acts 16.30-34. This is the Philippian jailer. After he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to, to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. 
he and all his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. All right, so believe, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. And they believed. Now, repentance is implied because, as uh, I believe it's John Murray puts it, these are uh, like Siamese twins. You, there are two sides of the coin. You can't have one without the other. Uh, re because repentance is turning away from sin, and faith is turning to God. And you do one, you're going to do the other. You can't turn away from sin without turning to Christ. And you can't turn to Christ without turning away from sin. And so it says, when, when it says they believed, it implies they repented. And when it says they repented, it implies they believed because they're reciprocal actions. They go together. All right, so one more passage. Paul's preaching in Ephesus. He tells the elders there in Acts chapter 20, verse 20 and 21, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is what my gospel preaching included. You have to repent. You repent from sin toward God. In other words, your repentance is, is also God-centered. And you believe in the Lord Jesus for the pardon of that sin. And then... Uh, so that's why in interviewing people for church membership, men and women alike, <laughs> we ask questions because we want to make sure they understand the gospel and have responded to it in the only appropriate way, turning from their sin and trusting in their Savior. Not just that they think hypothetically, well, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save me from my sin. We want to ascertain this, and so we ask questions to hear from each individual that they have indeed repented and trusted in Christ. But then thirdly, my number three is, who manifests a life transformed by the power of Christ. And here we have several references. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2, with 6, 11. And 1, 1 and 2 just says that Paul is writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now, if you're going to write a description of the church in Corinth, um, <laughs> what would you say about them? Uh, church in Corinth, with is a, which is a nest of hornets. Uh, to the church in Corinth, which is a hotbed of hotheads. Uh, the church in Corinth, which is a mess. But Paul writes and says, those who have been sanctified, those who are saints by calling. And these who are sanctified and saints by calling, he says in chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you, and he has just mentioned a whole list of worldly sins, such were some of you, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. The church is made up of those who have, as a matter of fact, been made holy. That's what sanctified means. They're changed. They're not what they used to be. They're washed and made new. Galatians, again, verses 1 and 2, speaks of those who are the churches of Galatia. 
And in verse in chapter 4, he says of these churches in Galatia, however, at that time when you did not know God, this is 4, 8, and 9, you were, past tense, slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Uh, which were salvation by ritual, salvation by uh, following Jewish uh, laws, legalism. Whether it's idols or Jewish legalism, he says, you've done with that. Why in the world are you turning back there that doesn't make sense if you are a member of the church in Galatia? And so the point is just simply this, that if you are part of the church, you ought to be, as he says, you were, but now you're no longer. You've been changed. Why would you ever desire to turn back to those things again. And if you turn back, it's an indication that you're not the real deal, which is kind of the bottom line of what Paul's saying to the Galatians. First Thessalonians and the confession or the, uh, the church constitution, rather, I keep messing up those two words, but you understand what I mean. The church constitution refers to first Thessalonians, basically the whole chapter, uh, one to nine, I think there are 10 verses there. But uh, let me just read a, a selection here. All right, uh, verse one, it's again, to the church of the Thessalonians, grace to you and peace. Verse three, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. They were marked by these three things. They weren't just having a name that they lived. They had a work of faith. They labored in love, and they kept faithful in their hope. Verse 5, the gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In other words, it's evident that this isn't just saying, oh yeah, I want to I join you, I want to just be numbered with you and do my own thing. No, 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 they had full conviction. Verse 9, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. In other words, how they received Paul was indicative of a changed life. How they received God's servant showed that something was different about them. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This church in Thessalonica was made up of those who were radically changed. That's the point. And Paul said, I know, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. I know you're elect. Hmm? How do you know they were elect? <laughs> because they manifested a changed life. And so he didn't know they were elect before they were saved, but he knew they were elect after they were saved, and they were evidently saved. All right, so that's number three. Manifest a life transformed by the power of Christ. I'm checking my time. Okay, number four, let's, let's go on. And who is living that life consistent with the provisions of this Constitution set forth in Article 5, Section 4, Paragraph B, Subdivisions 1 through 5 thereof. Sounds like legalese, uh, but it's not. So you look ahead in the Confession. You don't have it there. I'm sorry we didn't print that page quite yet. Uh, but we're not going to take time because we're going to get to those sections, all right? Uh, we'll get there. But I would want to just mention the headings because these five things delineate the basics of Christian living. 
This is what we expect, that you're going to live like a Christian. That's not legalism. That's just saying, this is what a Christian is. This is how a Christian lives. And we want to see this in you. And it would be good, and it was helpful to me just to read those sections over and see, well, what's basic Christian living? What does it look like? What should I look like in my daily life? And so I'd encourage you to, uh, to look these over from time to time. And I remember when our church in the Philippines constituted 35 years ago, I still remember it very vividly, that uh, we had provisions, not as detailed perhaps, but similar provisions about what a Christian life looks like, how we ought to conduct ourselves. And one member who was feeling somewhat overwhelmed by all of these statements of how a Christian ought to live, it was like, I don't know if I can do this. And then he realized it's all by the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 3, which is, I think, the, um, a good verse to remember in such a, a time when you're feeling overwhelmed. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. His power is working within us. If it's just my power, yeah, it's overwhelming. I can't do this. I can't live like this. But don't ever forget, when you're confronted with these things and how a Christian ought to live, Father, help me. Will he? The power that works within us. What for what purpose? To his glory in the church forever and ever. And you can plead on that power for his glory's sake. Lord, help me. I want to glorify you in my life at this point when I'm feeling weak and overwhelmed. Help me. And he loves to hear those cries for help. And he is quick to answer. What are those things in paragraph B, sections 1 through 5? Well, let me just read the headings. All right, one number one. And I ask you, all right, think about this as I go through the list. Is any of these over the top? Is any of these too much to ask? Number one, personal devotion to God. Each member is expected to walk personally with the Lord. And then a lot of other verses and so on. Is that too much to ask? Each member of the church is expected to walk with the Lord? What's the alternative? Walk with the devil. Walk with the world. No. That's not too much to ask. Walk with the Lord in your daily devotional life. Family life. The church expects its members to obey the teachings of the scriptures with respect to family life and the government of the home. Is that too much to ask? Did you want, we want to see godly families where husbands love their wives. Wives, is that, is that too much to ask? I hope not. And that the wives submit to their husbands. Husbands, you agree? Wives, I hope we all agree. And that we raise our children in the nurture, the admonition of the Lord. Amen. Of course. Personal evangelism, the third thing. It is the duty of every member to pray and labor according to his God-given ability and opportunity for the extension of the kingdom of God. You know, 
if it's all just up to us elders to see people saved, we've got an army. And you all go to places we're never going to get. And your testimony at, at work, in your neighborhood, in the shops where you go, this is a light to our dark state of New Jersey. Let your light shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. Fourthly, Christian liberty. Each member is required to render in his daily life loyal obedience to all the moral precepts established in the word of God. In other words, we, we do have limit to our liberty. That's the word of God. And furthermore, it goes on to say, and that's a whole other topic, that we use our liberty where things are not forbidden to avoid causing stumbling either to believers or a hindrance to unbelievers in coming to Christ. And we avoid harming our own souls by things indulged in that may be lawful, but not helpful. Christian liberty. And lastly, separation from the world. God never intended the glorious blessing of Christian liberty, which his people enjoy, to become an excuse and covering for worldliness. And then the Constitution goes on in some detail even to delineate some of the common expressions of worldliness in our day. And I believe this was probably one of the things that was added in a more recent uh, uh, revision of the Constitution because it delineates all of this present-day confusion with regard to gender and so on and relationships to state that we're, we're not going there. You're not going to see a rainbow flag outside of Trinity Baptist Church. Um, we do not conform to the world, but we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the five things there in that section that we expect people to manifest a Christian testimony. Is that too much to ask? I mean, that's like, duh, of course, <laughs> Right? Obviously, are we legalists? We're just following the scriptures. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them. I have an intimate relationship with them, and they follow me. That's just what we want to see. Sheep following the good shepherd. All right. Now, one more thing that we'll cover this morning, and that is baptism. Who has been baptized, so this is my number five, who has been baptized upon profession of faith. And there are a lot of verses there. Uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Uh, Going therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. You don't make them disciples by baptizing them, which is, I believe, what Roman Catholic Church teaches that you make disciples by baptizing them, get a little water on a baby, and he's a disciple. And that's not how we take this passage. It's not how Jesus intended it to be taken. You make disciples, those who are then followers of the good shepherd, and those are the ones you baptize. And those are the ones you teach to obey everything he commanded. And so, uh, the Great Commission. John 4 when the Lord Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So making disciples and then baptizing them. 
It doesn't say making disciples by baptizing them. Making disciples and then baptizing them. Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized. No others were baptized except those who received his word. And I would challenge anybody to find anybody baptized there who did not receive the word. And there were added that day 3,000. No one added who was not baptized is another good point to notice out of that passage. Acts 8.12, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. Who was being baptized? Those who believed. Men and women alike. Acts 16. And here we have, when I read the passage earlier, the Philippian jailer who asked Paul that key question, what must I do uh, to be saved? And he believed, he was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. Aha! If I believe, my household will be saved. Is that right? And if I believe, then my household should be baptized. Is that right? Now, some conclude here we have one of those cases of a household baptism. And we'll end with this uh, quick study of the household baptism in Acts chapter 16. Now, what do you see in the passage? So it would be helpful to have your Bibles open, Acts 16. What do you see in the passage that contradicts this assumption that there must have been infants there in this household? And if there were infants there, well, they too were baptized. They were included. What uh, three factors, I have three, do you see in this passage that contradicts that assumption of infant household baptism? Yes. All right, they had to believe. Look, well, uh, that's the ex explicit statement. He brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. That's explicit. That really should nail it. So the whole household believed. And that's why they were baptized. What else? There are a couple other factors, though, that indicate that those who believed here were not babies. Of course, you know, you ask a baby, uh, he's not going to answer. Yes, Jake. He spoke, the word to them. he spoke the word to them. Now, what time of day is this? After midnight. Okay. So it's after Paul took them, or the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Right. So it's maybe 1 a.m. After the earthquake, after all this goes on. And, uh, so, moms, you're going to wake your baby to sit him down in front of Paul to have Paul preach to him at 1 a.m. Uh-uh. <laughs> you know, not going to happen, right? Leave Junior B. And what else happens then at 1 a.m.? Okay, so they're helpful babies. <laughs> All right. They're rejoicing babies. And they're, they're baptized if they're babies. You know, 
again, moms, are you going to dunk your baby at 1 a.m.? I mean, dunk your baby, period. Uh, because baptism means immerse. That's what the Greek word means. And Greeks know that. Uh, Romans don't, but uh, Greeks do. Anyway, uh, these three factors, they, they all listen to the word. Infants wouldn't understand what, even if they listened. They're all awake after midnight, and they were all believing. And so it's believers who are baptized. So that's what we expect for someone to join this church, that just as we see the pattern in the book of Acts. One more text before we close in prayer. Acts 18, 8, And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Right? Again, the whole household believed. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so that's the fifth thing that we see in this paragraph. Basic Christian life. What we expect of someone who's going to be a member of Trinity Baptist Church. All right, so uh, that's what our church confession, uh, church constitution, I'll get it right, says. That's what we do. That's what you all do. And I hope there are no objections. And it's helpful to see this is what I ought to be doing as a Christian. How I ought to live to the glory of God. Not for my name, not for my ease, but for his honor. As I bear this light to let it shine in this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. Well, let's close in prayer then and ask that God would help us each to follow these uh, basics of how a Christian ought to live in this world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for guiding the man who put together this church constitution some years back. And even with the revisions that were made, we see how we ought to live as Christians, how we ought to conduct ourselves in this wicked, perverse generation. And we ask that you would so work in the lives of each of us, in each life, that our light would shine brightly. And all the more as the darkness grows around us. Oh, may it be that people would ask us even to give an account of the hope that's in us. And we would have many gospel opportunities, even as we saw that this is something we ought to be doing, to take advantage of those opportunities you give us to make your glory known in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.